Please open your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, the end of that chapter. Now you who are Christ's body and individually members of it, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and various kinds of tongues. Well, we're talking about our coexisting with our gifts together, how diversity is built in to our identity as the body of Christ. Just as our human bodies are full of diversity, the body of Christ is also full of diversity, and we've been examining the last couple of weeks how each member is necessary. Regardless of our perceptions of each other, each member is necessary. You're tempted to think, well, we could do without this member or that member, but Paul has rebuked that thinking in the last couple of weeks as we've studied this section of the letter. And this is the first time, as we get to verse 27, this is the first time in this section where Paul explicitly says, you all are the body of Christ. You see that? He says, and now you are Christ's body. And the you there is plural. And so if he was from Arkansas, perhaps he'd say y'all. Is that right, Yvonne? Now y'all are Christ's body. An explicit statement of their identity. They were the true community of Christ in the city of Corinth. As the church was just beginning, as church plants were just being planted and watered and growing, This group of believers in this city at that time were the true community of Christ. They were the true witness of Christ. Really enjoyed this quote from C.K. Barrett. He said, They were not simply the body of Christians, but the body of Christ. Not the body which is Christ, but the body that belongs to Christ and over which He rules. They were not simply the body of Christians, he says. Can you put that quote up, Walker, from Barrett? They were not simply the body of Christians, but the body of Christ. And not the body which is Christ, meaning they weren't some reincarnation of Christ. That's not what it means when it says the church is the body of Christ. But we're the body that belongs to Christ. Christ is the head of the body, and He rules over the body. That was the Corinthian identity. They held a particularly and uniquely important position in that city as the body of Christ, as Christ's diverse body. And as we see in our passage today, as you run your eyes over the verses that follow, we see that amid this diversity exists an ordering of offices in the church held by people who have specific gifts. The gifts are given out in a diverse way. Not everyone has the same gift. Not one, no one person has all the gifts. And there's an ordering of the offices of the church. And look at verse 28, where it shows that this ordering is God's decision. It says in verse 28, something that we've seen already in this chapter, God has appointed in the church. This is God's work in the church, His sovereign work in the church. This isn't a free-for-all where everybody just decides what they want to be, or there's a vote of who should get what gifts, or anything like that, or drawing you know, a gift out of a hat, and that's what you get. But as God does a sovereign work in redeeming an individual, 
He does the sovereign work of gifting that individual at the same time, at the moment of conversion. This is God's appointment. And of course, gifts have to be developed, people have to be trained, experience is important. But the gifting, the giving of certain gifts is up to God alone. And he gives this interesting order, notice again in verse 28, that he uses the terms first, second, and third. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? He doesn't do this elsewhere. This is a unique verse in that sense. He says, God has appointed first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. And then he goes on to list other gifts. Some say that this list is about authority. This ordering with first, second, third is about authority. Perhaps that's right. Some say it's about precedence. How you really distinguish that from authority, I don't know, but perhaps that's a better way to phrase it. I see it as reliance. We talked about this before in 1 Corinthians, but I see it as teachers are reliant on prophets and apostles. Prophets are reliant on apostles. It's all tied together no matter how you look at it. And if there's anything that Paul has labored to make clear in this section, it's that it's not about importance. When he says first, second, third, he's not saying the apostles are the most important. Prophets are next in line. Teachers, they're top three, pretty important. Everybody else, it's just kind of, that's the rest of the pack. That's not what he's saying. Paul has truly striven to make clear that it's There's no one who's more important than the other. All members are necessary. When it comes to necessity, there's equality in that every member is necessary. And to give some of that idea, I like what Gordon Fee wrote in his commentary. He said, it is perhaps noteworthy that none of these ranked persons is addressed in this letter, nor are they assumed to be in charge of the worship, which according to these texts is still under the sovereign authority of the Spirit. Remember, this is early on in the church, but Paul never singles them out and says, okay, to you prophets or to you teachers in this letter. He talks about them, but he doesn't address them. John MacArthur in his commentary points out that elders and deacons aren't even mentioned in this letter. No, we're not ready for the quote yet. You're you're a little overeager on that one. All right, (laughs) don't look yet. We're saving that one. Um, But they're, they're not even mentioned in the letter. And so he's not addressing elders and deacons either. It was very early on in the church and how the worship service, the gathered corporate worship was to be conducted was up to the sovereign Holy Spirit. And as this list is thought through, again, look down over these verses, particularly verse 28. As this list is thought through, let's consider the role of each one and the role of us today. Let's talk about apostles. He says, first, there's apostles. This was the ultimate office in the early church. Now, again, not most important, but using that word ultimate outside of the idea of importance. Look with me at chapter 14, same book, the end of chapter 14, and see where this idea comes through. 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 37. It says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So Paul, being an apostle, was commissioned to write Scripture. He had the ability to write Scripture. He had the confidence to say, what I'm writing to you is the Lord's commandment. That's a great confidence. And in that sense, this was the ultimate office that even the prophets had to yield to what Paul wrote. If anyone thinks he's a prophet, but then rejects what Paul has written, 
Well, he is not to be recognized. He's to be rejected because the ultimate office in the early church was that of apostle. Apostles were traveling evangelists and church planters. They were itinerant in the sense that they went from city to city. You don't see in the New Testament apostles staying at one church for their entire lives, but they were sent out. In fact, that word apostles, when used in a lowercase a sense, can mean just missionaries. They're ones who are sent. That's what the word means. And so they went around from city to city evangelizing and planting churches. And this is really key. What distinguished them from just evangelists? Well, apostles were infallible in their teaching. The gift of infallibility came with the gift of apostleship. And that's why it is just so staggering today when there are men who claim to be apostles, because what they're actually making a claim to is infallibility. If you claim to be an apostle, that means you're infallible in what you teach. Have you found any of those people today? You haven't. You haven't. When they taught in the church, they were teaching the Lord's commandment. And this is what distinguishes them from mere evangelists or pastors or leaders in the church. Evangelists, pastors, and leaders are all fallible. But apostles, in their teaching, they were infallible. Additionally, there was a qualification for apostles that they had to see the risen Christ. It was a qualification. They had to have seen Jesus. They also performed unique signs. Paul talks about in his next letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that there were certain signs of an apostle. These were miracles that were performed by their hands. Also, we recognize that apostles were the ones who wrote Scripture. They would sometimes write Scripture. And so it's important to recognize these distinguishing marks of an apostle because this was an extremely unique office. It was limited to just a handful of men in the first century. Those were the only ones who were rightly called capital A apostles, like the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter. It was an extremely small, extremely unique group of men who met certain qualifications and who lived in a certain way with a particular gifting. So first, in the church, God has appointed apostles. Second, were prophets. Second, were prophets. Now, prophets were like apostles in the sense that they helped form the foundation of the church. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Ephesians 2.20, it says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone. They received revelation from God like the apostles did. So, in that sense, there was similarity. Yet, there were also differences in that we don't see particular qualifications for prophets, like with apostles, apostles having to have seen the risen Lord. The apostles also had to be commissioned by Jesus Christ Himself. We don't see that qualification for the prophets. It seems also, too, that prophets in the New Testament, when they received revelation, it was context-specific or location-specific. There were multiple prophets in each church, And the prophecies that they would receive seemed to be specific to their location, whereas apostles would write Scripture that would apply to all churches at all times. Many prophets in the first century received location-specific revelation. They were inspired like apostles, yet there's some debate as to whether they were infallible like apostles. And we can see that again in chapter 14. We'll get to this passage sometime, but 
1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 29, it says, let two or three prophets speak. So you see again that there were multiple prophets in a church. This is in the church at Corinth. They had at least two or three prophets. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. And that's a very interesting phrase that we'll have to get to. Maybe we can schedule that sermon for someone else to cover. Uh, Verse 30, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So there were multiple prophets per church. In fact, Paul will write to this church in Corinth in chapter 14 saying multiple times, you should all desire to prophesy, all of you, which is an interesting aspect of this gifting. And it seems that this was a part of laying that foundation of the church, that as the foundation was being laid in the early church, there were multiple prophets per church, the gift was being employed, it was being given, it was being used by God in the church more and more. And it occurred not just with men, apostles were only men, but also with women. There were prophetesses in the early church. So since it was foundational to the church, this office of prophet was also limited to the first century. Even though there were certainly more of them than apostles, it was also limited to the foundation of the church. And a foundation doesn't have to be laid again. Then we get to third, teachers, apostles, prophets, and third, it says, teachers. Like evangelists, what do teachers do but build on the foundation that's given to them? The foundation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the foundation of the New Testament apostles and prophets that was given to the church. Teachers build on this, and this office continues. This office, of course, isn't limited to the first century. We have teachers in our church. We have evangelists in our church. This office continues today. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul wrote to that church saying this, that God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So these offices are held in the church for the equipping of the body the office of evangelist, the office of pastor-teacher. They took the revelation of the Old Testament and of the apostles and prophets and extrapolated it to the local church. Now, this is to be done decently and in order. As we read through the New Testament, we see qualifications for those who teach in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, of course, Paul writes that he doesn't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the very next chapter, Paul talks about qualifications for elders, and they are to be the husbands of one wife. They are to meet certain characteristic qualities in their personal lifestyle. In Titus chapter 1, he reiterates these characteristics, these qualifications that elders must hold to in the church, those who are pastor teachers. And in Titus chapter 2, he outlines specific roles for men and women in the church, So it's to be done decently and in order. It's not a free-for-all. There's still order, even though the office continues. So he says, first, apostles, they received their revelation from God and they were infallible. Then prophets, as second, who also received revelation from God, but their prophecies 
We're to be judged and be in submission to what the apostles wrote. And then teachers who continue today and take what the apostles and prophets have given them as a foundation of the church and build on that foundation as the word is exegeted, exposited for the people. And then he goes on to list the other gifts. And then he stops saying first, second, third. He doesn't say fourth now. He says, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Now, we touched on these miraculous sign gifts in previous messages. I highly recommend, if you haven't heard it, to listen to the message titled, No MSG. That MSG stands for Miraculous Sign Gifts. I heard from some people that when they saw it online, it said, No MSG, and they thought it meant no message, so they didn't listen to it. Uh, <laughs> there is a message in there, okay? And if you don't want to listen to me go on and on for however long that sermon was, you could also pick this up in our uh, free resources section on one of the shelves, Seven Reasons to Believe the Miraculous Sign Gifts Have Ceased, and it walks through seven particular biblical reasons for why we believe that. So I'm not going to rehash all of that today. But there are two gifts in the middle of this list that are listed nowhere else in Scripture. The gifts of helps and administrations. You see those tucked in between all of these miraculous sign gifts. The gift of helps. That's a, that's a nice word, isn't it? Help. It means assisting and aiding, you know this word. But think of it in this way, coming alongside someone to provide relief. If you have been given particularly the gift of helps, if God has burdened you with helping others, what you're doing is not merely assisting, not merely aiding, but coming alongside someone else to provide relief for that person. It truly is a ministry in that sense where you're ministering to the soul of another. Here's that John MacArthur quote now, Walker, talking about the gift of helps. He says, helps is an especially beautiful word, meaning to take the burden off someone else. That gift is doubtlessly one of the most widely distributed of any and is a gift that is immeasurably important in supporting those who minister other gifts. I thought that was a good summary of the gift of helps. And it's followed by, notice that helps comes first. I think that's somewhat significant. And it's followed by administrations, or perhaps here says guidance. It means to govern or to direct as a steward. This word has with it in its history, when you look at the semantic range for the word, it's used of ship captains who would steer the ship, direct the ship where to go. Not that they were owners of the ship, they weren't those who bought the ship or built it or anything like that, but they were put in charge of directing the ship. So as a steward of a group of people, of an organization, whatever it may be, guiding, governing, directing. And in fact, you could say, since it's right next to the gift of helps, so often the people who have the gift of helps are directed by people with the gift of administration. The two tie together in that sense. And if we just take those two gifts, helps and administrations, it forms a pretty good bifurcation, a good watershed. If you're more inclined to lead and direct and guide others, or more inclined to come alongside and help or follow. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we've been going through 1 Peter on Wednesday nights, but we see that 1 Peter made a similar type of two groups of gifts uh, presentation when he said, whether your gift has to do with speaking or serving. 
Speaking could be lumped in with all the leading type gifts like administrations and others. Romans 12 says leading. And serving, of course, that would include the idea of helps or mercy or giving those sort of gifts. It's a good way of breaking that down into two big picture categories. And from there, after Paul lists these gifts in verse 28, he asks a series of rhetorical questions in the next two verses, 29 and 30. And his rhetorical questions press the point of diversity in the church. As he asks the questions, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? Drop down to verse 30. All do not have gifts of healings, do they? And on and on it goes. The assumed answer, of course, is absolutely not to each one. Paul's not actually asking a question. He's using a rhetorical device to help them understand the point. Because the Corinthians had elevated certain gifts above others and had made categories within their church of those who were truly spiritual or mature based on their own definitions. And we'll return back to that that idea in a few moments. But Paul here is making the point that no one person possesses all of the gifts. No one gift is held by everybody. And that's very, very important. It seems elementary, but we can lose sight of that, that no one person possesses all the gifts. And you know what happens in churches that aren't like ours? I'm not talking about our church. I'm very thankful for our church and the body of Christ here. But in a lot of small churches, smaller than ours, churches that have grown cold in a lot of senses, you have certain people who are expected to live as though they have all the gifts. You have two, three, four, five people, maybe in some churches one person, who is expected to live as though he is someone with each one of these gifts. And that's not fair to anybody, is it? That's not how God designed the body. God designed the body that we would all have our particular role and function. And as you think about your particular gifting... You know, there are lots of wrong ways to go about doing this, finding out your spiritual gifts, what God has wired you to do. But I've adapted a a pretty popular illustration that helps you think through this. And so bear with me and follow along and see where you would fit in. Imagine you're standing in line at some stand somewhere that's selling ice cream, an ice cream stand. And a little girl walks by with one of those ice cream cones that's bigger than she is, you know, and there she is walking with it, and she trips over the curb. It falls all over the ground. Just a tragic scene. (laughs) I don't really like ice cream, so it's not too tragic for me. But for some of you, that is just like one of the worst things that could happen to you. And she's sitting there crying. Now, what do you do? Do you say, Look, the reason you fell is because your eyes were just glued to this ice cream and you weren't looking at the ground. And if you would have been, you would have seen the broken curb and you would have stepped appropriately and the ice cream wouldn't have fallen. If that's your response, well, maybe you have a gifting to help the people understand issues at play and how to avoid them in the future. Gifts of counseling, teaching, and preaching. Not the gift of tact. Proverbs says a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. I don't know what you would call that kind of reaction, but not that, all right? Uh, 
And so if you have one of those giftings, you have to be very careful about having tact. That's where my mind goes in situations like that. So I shamefully say, I've, done, I've said such things in such moments on more than one occasion. Perhaps that's not you, though. Perhaps when you see that happen, you say, you know what? We can fix that curbing. And you start working with people to say, okay, here's what we can do. For the meantime, let's get cones out and let's paint it or something to signify that it's broken. And hey, you do this, you do that. And you start the ball rolling and fixing the curb. Perhaps you have gifts of administration or leading where you can rally people together to accomplish a certain task, to fix an issue for the future. In the moment, do you say, you know what, I'll help you clean it up. And you're on your way to go get napkins and a trash can and everything else, and and you're there to assist that little girl, crying all over herself, snot everywhere, and you say, you know what, I can help you. Or do you hear the person talking about fixing the curbing and say, you know what, I can do that. I saw some paint, let me go grab it. Or I saw a cone over there and I can do that. Well, perhaps you've got a gifting to help people with practical needs in the moment of their need, like the gift of helps. Maybe you see that little girl there crying, ice cream everywhere, ants are starting to gather, and you say, I'll buy you a new dessert, don't you worry about it. And you go and you jump, jump ahead in line, you say, this is for a little girl, and you buy her a new dessert, you get her an even bigger ice cream cone. You have a gifting to make up for personal losses, like having the gift of giving. Or do you say, it's okay, sweetie. Don't feel bad. This could happen to any of us. It's okay. We're going to make this right. Perhaps you have a gifting to care for the person and her emotional needs in the moment, like words of knowledge and wisdom or the gift of mercy. Can you imagine all those people being in line at the same time and doing all those things at the same time? That's the body of Christ. That we come together as different as we are and as, you know, if one person lacks tact, another person makes up for it. Another person doesn't know how to help the little girl in the future but can help her in the moment and someone else comes alongside and say, okay, here's what we can do for the future. Someone else doesn't have money to buy another dessert and someone else does. Can't you see how that diversity is so much more beautiful than if we were all the same? If we were all just standing around saying, you shouldn't have been looking at that ice cream cone, you should have been looking at your feet. She would cry even more, and she wouldn't get a new ice cream cone. I don't know how to transition that metaphor now to the local church, but I think you get the idea as you begin to assess your gift. This beautiful diversity of gifts is to be considered, is to be cherished, is to be held on to. And amid this great diversity, look at verse 31, he goes on to say this, we have this diversity, and then... But earnestly desire the greater gifts, Paul says. Now, what could he mean by that? Earnestly desire the greater gifts. We are to pursue greater gifts. Once we grasp the distinctions between gifts, the distinctions between our roles in the local church that we're not all the same, we are now to desire collectively the greater gifts within our distinctions. And to understand what Paul meant there, we need to understand a little more of the Corinthian context. It seems as though the Corinthians were dealing with a particular issue. I mentioned earlier they were exalting certain gifts above others. They were setting categories in the, in the church, creating factions and teams. But they had a particular problem, it seems, with the gift of tongues. And we'll see a lot of this in chapter 14. But it appears as though the Corinthians had exalted tongues as this 
personal expression of superior spirituality. I, I'm using the gift of tongues so you know that I'm more mature than you. You know that I'm more spiritual than you. They were abusing that gift, the gift of languages in the church. And what was at the root of that, because when we see an issue like that in a local church, we have to recognize that's just the fruit of something. That's the symptom of something else. Well, what was behind that? It was a heart that the Corinthians were growing to have where they sought personal advancement or personal edification over and against mutual upbuilding. Many individuals in the Corinthian church were seeking after their own gain to advance their own standing, as opposed to looking around and saying, how can I serve other people? How can I wash feet? How can I build people up? How can I advance the body as a whole, as opposed to just me? Very inward focused, very selfish in that regard. And so Paul here is calling the Corinthian church when he says, earnestly desire the greater gifts, he's calling them to focus on the collective body not just themselves individually. And what's interesting about this section of the letter is that Paul starts this thought in verse 31, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And you may notice that the next line in your Bible is a new paragraph, if yours signifies paragraphs. And I show you a still more excellent way, he says. And the reason why that's a new paragraph is because Paul is interrupting himself with a thought about love. He starts verse 31 saying, pursue the greater gifts, and then he goes on this sidetrack of talking about love's role in all of this in the church. And then he picks back up the pursuit of greater gifts in chapter 14. Look with me at chapter 14, verse 1, same book, chapter 14, verse 1, he says, pursue love, and then here's our theme, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who speaks prophecies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. And my nose started running for some reason. I apologize, but uh, I would hate to look up and you see something on my face that isn't supposed to be there. <clears throat> my spiritual gift is not... Oh, I won't go there. Okay, so... Uh, you see the thought continued in chapter 14 when Paul says, desire earnestly spiritual gifts in verse 1, but especially that you may prophesy. And he goes on and he starts making a, a compare and contrast uh, between the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues edifies individually, Paul says, yet the gift of prophecy edifies the whole church. And so, going back to verse 31, we can understand more of what Paul was saying at the end of chapter 12 when he says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. He goes on to correct their thinking about tongues. It's not something that all do. Paul has already made that clear. Not all speak with tongues or in other languages. 
Yet, it's good, it's encouraging for those who do it, and Paul even says he wishes that they all could speak with other languages. But, Paul is saying that it's not a gift that clarifies the will of God. When you think of the gift of prophecy, the gift of teaching, these clarify the will of God. The apostles and prophets clarified the will of God. Teachers are to clarify the will of God based on that revelation. And so it edifies the whole church, not just the individual, when one prophesies or teaches. And notice, again, in our passage today, look back up at verse 28. Do you see where the gift of tongues is placed in that list? Well, it's dead last. That's for a reason. Look at verse 30. When he's asking all these questions, or verse 31, or verse 30, yeah, that's right, verse 30. The last two that are listed in his rhetorical questions... All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? He places tongues and the interpretation of tongues last in that list also. So Paul is getting a point across. He's going to make it more explicit in chapter 14. But he's making the point that we should desire the gifts that build up the whole body. We are to desire spiritual gifts that advance all people spiritually, not just individuals. So what does that mean for us? That was the Corinthian situation, but what does that mean for us today? Because I think I know what's going on in our body most of the time, and I don't think any of you have been seeking to advance yourself individually through the gift of tongues. If so, that would be interesting to know about. I would like to know. Let me know. But what does that mean for us today? Well, the principle still remains. We are to zealously go after. We are to greatly desire... If you're using the King James, verse 31 uses the word covet. You could even say we are to covet the spiritual gifts that build up everyone. We are to desire those in our church. We're to to desire just the fact that God has created His body for mutual upbuilding, and we, we want to see that more and more. We should want to see that more and more in our church. We are to recognize that edification of the whole body is paramount. There's nothing more important in living as a church than building up the church. Remember back in Ephesians 4 when Paul was listing apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers? He says, for the equipping of the body for the work of service. That's the purpose of spiritual gifts. It's not to go out and be showy in the church to make yourself appear more spiritual. Your spiritual gift isn't even primarily for the world for those outside of the church. Now, there may be ways in which God uses your spiritual gifting among those who don't know the Lord, but the primary purpose of your gifting is for the people that you see in this room with you, for the building up of the body. That's why God has gifted gifted you. So you must see your role in your spiritual gifting in the context of the church. Now, I, I saw an article not that long ago. I I don't really follow the NFL these days. Football is a little too barbaric for me. And uh, when they became a political entity, it made it much more, I don't know, difficult to watch, I guess. But uh, I was reading an article about the New York Giants head coach. His name's Joe Judge, I think. What a name, Joe Judge. Mr. Judge is here to talk to you. Ooh, my, Joe Judge. Well, it seems like, uh, I think it was last year, their training camp, all the players getting together, getting ready for the season, going through all their workouts and practices. He instituted some reforms among his team. 
One of them being he took the name off of their jerseys. They all lost their last name on their practice uniforms and training camp. So they only had their number and their team name left. And his point was to get across to perhaps some particular players who were particularly showy that the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back. And if you've ever played in a team sport, that's a a mantra that gets repeated. The name on the front of the jersey is more important, your team name. And we could say the same thing about the body of Christ if we were perhaps to wear uniforms here. What's our team name? Well, the body of Christ. And perhaps we have our gifting on the back, whatever that is, however God has gifted you. What's more important is that you are a member of the body. When you start neglecting the fact that God has put you on His team, put you in His family, placed you in His body, and want to exalt your particular gifting, you've gotten things out of order. Or hide your gifting. Hide it under a bushel. That's no good. On that particular concept of not using your gifting, there was a time I went with a group of men When I lived in Missouri, our home church in Sedalia, we went to a church in a town about 45 minutes away that was older, dying church financially. They weren't very well off at all. Uh, They were down to probably, I don't know, a dozen, 15 people that were showing up. But they were still hanging in there. They wanted to continue. And so we went there to help them with any needs that they might have, particularly physical needs in the building because the whole congregation was just older. And as we walked into the auditorium and we flicked on all the lights, like our auditorium, there were a lot of lights, a lot of light bulbs, and I took up for the day the task of replacing the light bulbs in the auditorium. There were enough light bulbs out just in the auditorium that replacing those took me the whole time we were there. Dozens of lights that had just been neglected. And it was a great metaphor for the body itself, that local body just slowly dying out, light by light, running out until it was going to be dark. And no one was there to even change light bulbs. They were missing just that important member of the body, someone who can keep the lights on. And when we neglect our spiritual gifts for whatever reason, when we hide the light that God has given us to share with the body, to build up the body, the whole body suffers and begins to decay, begins to die The body's weakened. Our pursuit of this mutual upbuilding must be paramount. And what Paul's going to teach us is that it also must be shrouded in love. As we go about serving in the church, building one another up, we have to do it from a standpoint of love. Just like I was speaking earlier about evangelism, our motivation must be love. The same is true in the church. We don't do this begrudgingly. We do it because we are so overjoyed that God would use us, that He would even save us, that He would want us. He doesn't need us, but He wants us. That's why you're saved, and that's why you're here, is to build up the body. And so in a couple of weeks, we'll get into chapter 13, and we'll find out more about this more excellent way that Paul talks about as we take a little sidetrack and talk about love in the church. But next Sunday, we have a real special treat. You might not know what it is, so you'll just have to show up and find out. That's how we get them back, right, Wayne? Okay, all right. Very good. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much that You are doing an amazing work in building Your church and putting 
Christ's body together, both universally and locally. All around the world, collectively, we are the body of Christ. And right here in this place, we are a local outpost. We're a local body of Christ, and we are to seek to serve one another to the honor of your name. Give us a passion for this. Give us a a heart that greatly desires to see one another encouraged and built up. Help us to consider one another as more important than ourselves. Help us to love you more and more as we understand more and more about your nature and the gospel. And just give us a vision for this local body. Help us to be a part of that vision, to serve you faithfully, to leave all of the results up to you, that we would just be content with magnifying your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.